Well, thank you, Travis. We continue in our studies of the attributes of God this morning. Forgive me for my froggishness this morning. I've been struggling with sickness this week. But we consider this morning the holiness of God. And I call your attention now to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and they blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn and be healed. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Oh, blessed are you, O oh, gracious Father, whose love is revealed in your Son, whose love is the delight of all who truly know you and whose word we love as the light of life. Pour out your Spirit now on us, and as we consider these verses from your word, pour out your Spirit on us that our hearts may be illumined and our days filled with peace. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, something truly historic took place on Christmas Eve, 1968. It was then that humanity saw an earth rise for the very first time. Some of you remember that, these iconic Images of the earth rising above the moon's surface. You've seen them, I'm sure, reproduced countless times in pictures, wall hangings, posters, and sorts. Uh, this picture was taken by the crew of America's Apollo 8 spacecraft. The mission of Apollo 8 had been to send a manned spacecraft 
around the moon and home to earth safely for the first time in history. And reflecting on that mission, 50 years later, crew member Jim Lovell said that as Apollo 8 was rounding the moon on its first of 10 orbits, the crew saw something far more colorful and lovely and beautiful than that gray lunar surface that was passing beneath them on the moon's far side. The crew saw the earth. 244 miles, 1,000 miles away, rising slowly above the moon's horizon. On the one hand, our planet seemed so significant, it's home to billions of people. And yet on the other hand, the, the earth looked so small. Lovell said, I put my thumb up to the window and completely hid the earth. Just think. Over five billion people, everything I ever knew was behind my thumb. The earth is just a mere speck in our Milky Way galaxy <clears throat> and lost to oblivion in the universe. The crew of Apollo 8 felt humbled by their smallness in the vastness of the creation. And that can be a good thing. It's good to understand your true smallness. But it's a far greater thing for proud humans to feel small before the, the majesty of creation's creator. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And Isaiah is experiencing that here. <clears throat> God's holiness represents everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe and reverence and majesty and dread. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth that its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, Isaiah says. The creation dwarfs us, but God's greatness dwarfs it all. But in the Bible, God's holiness also refers to his moral perfection, which cannot tolerate any sin. And so as Isaiah is being confronted now in his vision with God's lofty majesty and his fiery purity, he cries out, he is ruined. Woe am I, he cries out. I mean, he sees his situation as so hopeless, he doesn't even bother to ask for cleansing or forgiveness. But he underestimates the grace of God. God hasn't given Isaiah a vision of his holiness simply to destroy him. Instead, a vision of his holiness God has brought to him so that having seen <clears throat> the truth about God and having understood the truth about himself, but also having received God's gracious cleansing, he might be equipped now to serve God with power. The gracious cleansing of our glorious holy God makes us strong and confident because we know a holy God's acceptance. Oh, my friends, isn't one of our great besetting sins that we try and make God small? We want a God who is safe. We want a buddy we can manage and control and ignore when we want to. 
But you see, that's precisely why we're so anxious and we're so fearful and empty and discouraged. Receiving mercy from a little God is nice, but it's no big deal at all. But mercy from a great and awesome and fearful God is is staggeringly wonderful. It's life-changing. In the words of John Newton's famous hymn, God's grace is amazing. Oh, my friends, we need to be staggered by an awareness of a God who is greater than the entire universe. And we also need to be stripped of our innate pride and self-confidence in God's presence. You see, it's only when we are staggered and stripped by God's holiness that we will really treasure God's healing by his undeserved mercy, which is ours in Christ. Only then will we say, oh, it is good to know the Lord. Only then we will say it's good to know the Lord. Now, what are the qualities of of God's holiness that brought Isaiah to that realization first? God's holiness staggers us. People don't talk much about the holiness of God today. It doesn't come up in the news. It doesn't come up in casual conversation. But people were talking about the holiness of God in Isaiah's day. You see, this was the time when King Uzziah died. Uzziah had been a good king. The Bible says he sought God. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then Uzziah became proud of his accomplishments. And his pride led to his downfall. One day, Uzziah barged into the holy place of the temple to burn incense, something that only the priests were permitted to do. And then, as the priests were confronting him and saying, you can't do that, leprosy broke out on Uzziah's forehead. The king was forced to leave the temple because he was unclean, and Uzziah remained a leper till the day he died, away from the temple because of his uncleanness. Uzziah had considered God's holiness just a small thing when it is a great thing. And so where people were talking about these things, when the king died and, and God gave Isaiah a vision of his majestic holiness that staggered him, staggered by the Lord reigning, that's what the prophet saw. In the vision, Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of Almighty God and he sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, far above the creation. The Lord wears a robe so long it fills the temple. All the great rulers of the world are as nothing before this God. All the teeming multitudes of humanity are insignificant in his sight. This is the mighty one who measures the waters in the palms of his hand and marks off the heavens with a span. And Isaiah is staggered by what he sees and staggered by the seraphim calling. God is being attended by holy angels. These are seraphim, literally burning ones, because these burning ones are holy in their own right. But even they are humbled by God's majesty. With self-abasement, they cover their eyes and cover their feet from the view of the Almighty. 
And Isaiah hears the seraphim calling to each other. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. The angelic beings see reality more clearly than we do. They are showing us the proper attitude toward our God and creator. It is good to be overwhelmed with the majesty and purity of God. It is good to reverence him humbly on our knees with our heads bowed. Isaiah is staggered by what he hears. And staggered by the thresholds pounding the words of the angelic hymn are accompanied by the pounding of the temple thresholds. The angelic voices thunder but the foundations of the temple rock and roll like an earthquake. The place is filled with smoke from the altar so that God's glory is clothed with mystery. Isaiah is staggered by what he feels. And I think it's good for us to pause and to ask ourselves if we have any sense at all of God being like this. I say this because you see our culture hates this idea of God. It tries to suppress the truth of God's holiness and majesty into oblivion. We find the whole idea of a God whose greatness makes this world insignificant, whose eyes are too pure to look on sin, who comes down from Mount Sinai with fire and smoke, who judges and sends men to hell. Our culture says all this is primitive. We're enlightened. We've gotten past all of that. I read a a while back about a woman who was asked when she became a Christian. And so she said, well, do you mean the time when I heard the Christian message for the first time or the day I really came to believe it? Or do you mean the day I realized that if God is who he says he is, then my entire life is going to be completely changed and turned upside down? The questioner said, I want to know about that day because that's the day you realize that God is God. That's the day you realize that God is holy. You see, have the thresholds of our souls been shaken by the reality that that our God is God? Now, I realize our our natural impulse is to push this God away from ourselves, but, but we must reject that impulse because to know this God is our own is the way of peace. It's the way of confidence. It's the way of wisdom and power. His his ways are supremely good. And therefore, he is worthy of our complete trust and faith. Let God's holiness stagger you. And then God's holiness strips us. As Isaiah sees the majesty of the Lord and hears the calling of the angels and feels the pounding of the foundations, he cries out that there is a that he is undone by his sinfulness. He's been stripped of his natural self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness. And don't we see in this confrontation a couple of things? One thing is we must see the evil of our sin. You see, just as a diamond shines brilliantly under bright light so the darkness of Isaiah's sin is perceived fearfully in the light of God's white-hot purity. He, He realizes he hasn't a leg to stand on before God and that realization enables him to direct his attention now from his sinful acts to a sinful heart that lies beneath the acts. Before there is ever a sinful thought or word or deed, 
There's forced a sinful heart, which is the fountain of it all. That insight, I believe, is it helps us understand why Isaiah cries out that he's a man of unclean lips. Why does he say that? Well, there's a lot of discussion about that. But one insight, I think, that helps us is understanding that what one says provides this little window into what is one in one's heart. You see, the issues of our hearts flow out of our mouths like water from a spring. And that realization helps us understand this unsettling commission that Isaiah receives from God in verses 9 through 10. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Sometimes people say that's not fair. But my friends, here's the sobering truth. This is exactly where our hearts are unless God shows us mercy as he does Isaiah. This is where we are. Our hearts are dull, our ears are heavy, our eyes are blind. We can't save ourselves. And it's even worse than that. We couldn't care less about being saved from our sin unless God first removes our hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh and new life. Have you ever felt not simply that you are broken, but that you are ruined? Have you ever felt not simply that you're sick, but that you are dead in sin? Unless God makes you alive. Have you ever felt like the tax collector in Jesus' parable who would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That kind of language is off-putting to a culture whose hearts are dull and ears are heavy and eyes are blind. But that sobering realization is necessary for God's healing. We don't want the cure. We do not want the cure unless we realize we are terminally ill with sin. But here's an interesting thing as well. We must see the evil of our righteousness. We must see the evil of our righteousness. I know that sounds contradictory, but consider Isaiah's case here. Another reason Isaiah cries out he's a man of unclean lips is because he's a prophet. This man is already a preacher at this point. Here's the sobering truth. Go back earlier to chapters 1 through 5. And you'll see that chapter 6 apparently is not when Isaiah receives his call to prophesy because he's already gotten it. He's a prophet. He's a preacher of the word. And so the holiness of God in chapter 6 doesn't make Isaiah think only of its sins. It also makes him think of his strengths. It makes him think of his gifts as a preacher. It makes him think of the things that he does what best. But he finds that in the light of God's holiness, these are not really the strengths he thought they were after all. You see, this is one of the insights that sets true Christians off from those who are simply moral and religious and gifted. Before he was converted, Paul had a similar kind of experience. We, <clears throat> we know from different places in the New Testament that Paul was very zealous. He was a religious man. He was morally upright. He was very gifted. He was a leader in his community. He excelled in religious devotion above most of his contemporaries. 
And then according to Romans 7, Paul was studying the Ten Commandments and he read, you shall not covet. He says, the law came and I died. Paul was proud of his righteousness. But now his eyes were open to see the evil even in his own righteousness. Over 200 years ago, one of the great preachers of the First Great Awakening, George Whitfield, preached about peace with God from Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. He said that to have peace with God, we must repent of our sins. And that makes sense. But then as his follow-up point, he said to have peace with God, you must also repent of your righteousness. You can't know the joy of salvation until you do so, Whitfield said. Now, why is that? It's because otherwise you will simply use Jesus to try and save yourself by your religious devotion, your religious experiences, and your religious gifts. God, I attend church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and midweek. God, I tithe to widows, orphans, and missionaries. God, I know some of the finer points of the catechism. I'm even getting into Calvin's Institutes. Well, those are great things. But they won't save you. I mean, if we come to God presenting the things, these kinds of things for his acceptance, he'll send us away as people with unclean lips. Only a true sight of God's holiness can strip us of our self-righteousness because... My friends, self-righteousness, that is always the last idol to be taken out of our hearts. It is. Our self-righteousness is always the last idol to be taken out of our hearts. Until you see the evil in your own self-righteousness, you will never turn to God for help. You might make Christ your example. You might be moved by Christian music. You might be edified by devotional writing. But you will not trust in him as Savior until you have repented of your righteousness. The only hope for us is free grace. God's holiness strips us bare so that we may receive God's amazing grace as his gift to us by faith in Christ. And then finally, God's holiness heals us. How can we say that God's holiness heals us when God's holiness is an affront to our sin? It's in this way. You see, God's holiness makes God's grace real. God's holiness makes God's grace real precious to us you will never see the grace and love of God as amazing as something that just shakes you to your roots and and changes you and lifts you up and and gives you power until you've been brought out of your religious self-righteousness that's what the hot coal touching Isaiah's lips signifies Isaiah had a theoretical idea of his sin until God's holiness made his sin very real to him Once that happened, he was able to move from this theoretical view of God's grace that he may have had to a deeply personal and a satisfying understanding of God's grace. Here's a simple test. 
Here's a simple test. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. Unless you are wounded by the holiness of God, you'll never be healed by the grace of God. I mean, if the grace of God is something you kind of shrug off, if you, if you don't know what in the world has gotten into people who say that God loves me and, and you see their life changed by it, and you say, well, I've, I've always believed God loves me, but my life hasn't changed. Do you know what the difference is? You don't understand the holiness of God. A lot of people just participate in modern man's distaste of the holiness of God. But if you remove the holiness of God from your understanding, you completely eviscerate his love and its transforming power. Here's something some of us raised in the church may need to understand. A holy God is different from merely a demanding God. Some of us may have been raised with. Uh, The demanding God says, you have to obey me. The demanding God says, you have to do better. But then you never know his love and his acceptance. Some of us have been crushed by a God like that. I was, and I was in Christian service. I was crushed by a holy God like that. And I hated God because of it. I read those strong statements of Luther's before he came to faith in God's grace, how he said, love God, sometimes I feel I hate him, and I thought, that's me. But here's my point. That's not the holy God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible says, don't you see that you can't truly obey me? Don't you see that even your best works are shot through with so much unrighteousness? A holy God never rubs your nose and your flaws except to bring a coal of atonement to your lips. What do our lives express when we know God's healing by his undeserved grace? Two things. We love God. We truly love God. How can we possibly love a holy God That troubled me. How can I love this holy God? Here's how the Gospel of John, chapter 12, says Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Now, what's that mean? It means that in Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Jesus high and lifted up. But we know more than Isaiah did. We know that the high and lifted up one is who was revered by the angels is also the one who stooped low and became God incarnate in the womb of Mary and grew up in our flesh and went to the cross to make atonement for our sins. Jesus endured the fiery justice of God in our place on the cross to reconcile us to God. Let us repent of our sins. Let us repent of our self-righteousness. Let us simply accept as God's gift, God's own atonement for our sins in the person of his son, Jesus crucified. Oh, my friends, love God for the gift of love that our holy God has given to you. Love him, but also love God for his holiness, you see? 
Because if we do, it, it shows that we love him for who he is in himself rather than merely what he does for us. We love God. And then another way God's healing expresses itself as in our lives is we hate sin. Sin is an affront to God, this God that we love. We hate sin because God hates sin. We hate sin because it's an affront to everything that is good and wise and beautiful. We hate sin because we remember that our sins sent God's beloved son Jesus to the cross to bear the judgment we deserve. Let us pray. Almighty God, we see how at the cross your just holiness and your mercy and grace kiss. We are amazed that you are a God of fiery holiness who sent your son into this world to receive the justice and the judgment we deserve. Lord, we praise you. We thank you. How amazing is your grace. Lord, we love you. We love you. We want to walk with you. We want to serve you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.